Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global discussion. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my columns. But with this show, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. Before we start negotiating with anyone, we say, you've got to raise your standards. You've got to raise your labor standards. You've got to raise your environmental standards. You've got to raise your human rights standards. We can't use trade as a way to drive down standards across the world. We need to use the leverage of American markets to drive up standards around the world. Today's edition comes from Washington, D.C. We're now less than a year from the next presidential election, and the bookmaker's favourite to win the Democratic Party nomination is now Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Senator Warren has excited the Democratic Party base with radical views on taxation, corporate reform and health care. Along with her fellow senator, Bernie Sanders, she represents the so-called progressive wing of the party. But what would a Warren or Sanders presidency mean for the rest of the world? To answer that question, I took a wander down Massachusetts Avenue, which I've always thought of as Think Tank Alley because some of Washington's most venerable think tanks are arranged along the avenue or just off it, including the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the International Institute of Economics, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, known as CSIS, which is not to be confused with SICE, the School of Advanced International Studies. But the think tank I turned into is perhaps the most venerable of the lot, the Brookings Institution. There I sought the advice of Tom Wright, As you'll hear from his accent, Tom is originally from Ireland, but he's now an American citizen, and more important, he is, I think, one of the most astute analysts of American foreign policy there is. So what does he make of the Warren-Sanders approach to the world? Yeah, well, it's an interesting primary election so far on foreign policy, partly because foreign policy plays such a small role in it. And the candidates other than Biden seem mainly motivated by trying to tick the box and to show they're credible, but not really to dive deeply. So they have advisors and they've given speeches on it. But when you really press them, they don't really want to talk about it that much. And I don't think they've fundamentally sort of thought about translating what they're saying on the campaign trail into governing. So that's sort of the first sort of point is is that there's a little less to go on than normal. But if you look at it just in what's out there, I think you do see this sort of Warren Sanders 
position emerging, which is to say that the world's increasingly divided between democracies and authoritarian states, that those sort of authoritarian states are allied with kleptocratic and oligarchic elements within our own societies, sort of in a clear sort of allusion to Trump, but also maybe in their minds to parts of finance, and that they need to sort of wage a collective transnational struggle on behalf of the middle classes to try to counteract some of these elements. And they want to fundamentally look at the economic and the political aspects of that rather than the military aspects of that. And that sort of is what Warren and Sanders have both focused on in some speeches they've given and also in the foreign affairs articles. And so in a sense, their foreign policy position is an outgrowth of their approach to domestic policy because they look at inequality in the U.S., the growth of an oligarchy as they would see it. And they say, okay, what lessons does that lead us to in foreign policy? Exactly. And then they would look at, say, Putin and see sort of his oligarchic and kleptocratic nature and see that as sort of allied with Trump. And then they would also look at the strongman phenomenon. And sometimes they'd throw in democratic leaders into that mix like Trump and Netanyahu. Sanders did that in his speeches. And they try to draw fairly sort of stark lines. But at its core, I think, you know, when they're sort of pressed on it, they would say what's really different is, you know, an economic focus. And so they want to try to address some of these, what they would see as economic imbalances globally to try to push back against these kleptocratic authoritarian forces, which they do see sort of at home too. So it's a fusion of the domestic and the foreign policy. And it is sort of an interesting and fairly stark message I think there are a couple of things that are notable about it just from an analytical point of view. The first is that it's pretty aligned with the mainstream of the democratic foreign policy establishment in terms of values as an organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy and that rising authoritarianism is a major challenge. And so it's not Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy, right? There's a huge difference from where Sanders and Warren are situating themselves and where Corbyn has situated themselves. You mean Corbyn, the Uh, leader of the Labour Party, being attracted to Venezuela, for example? Right. They wouldn't go there? No, and they were opposed to US intervention in Venezuela, but they're being pretty careful to be critical of Maduro and to call for sanctions and, and the like. They also, I think, they're not critical of the Western alliance or they don't have that decades-long left critique of U.S. power, although they do criticize military power and defense policy intervention. But there is, I think, a bit of a difference. So that's the first thing, is that there are people in the democratic foreign policy establishment who've taken hope from some of these positions to say, well, we can work with that. It's different, but it is still sort of aligned with that traditional role. But just to define our terms then, so when you say you make a distinction between Sanders and Warren and the democratic foreign policy establishment, the foreign policy establishment would be the people who grew out of sort of Clinton, Obama administrations, have a pretty mainstream view, which used to be bipartisan, about the role of American power in the world. And they would have been concerned that people coming from the left of the party, Warren and Sanders, would reject most of that. You think... Right. Okay. I think it's a little complicated, but there are vast areas of alignment. I mean, Sanders and Warren are very critical of intervention and military intervention, and they would take a very strong line that there should not be intervention, although Sanders' track record in this is more checkered than his former position. 
you know, he supported the Kosovo campaign. He voted for the Iraq Liberation Act in 1998, even though he opposed the Iraq War in 2003. So, you know, Warren hasn't been there as long. But on intervention, they would say that this is a fundamental difference. And in the Middle East, they basically want to get out, essentially. And the establishment, I think, is split on that. But on other global issues, particularly on Europe and Asia, I think there is a greater alignment. And when the Warren advisors in particular are asked about this, they say, well, look, it's more important to defend democracy than it is to promote democracy. And we want to defend it. And they've even you know, made strong statements on Hong Kong and on a variety of other issues. And that, I think, is where the alignment occurs. Right. So I think there is common ground. The second sort of observation, though, which is in the opposite direction, is that even though there's common ground, there are still differences. Right. So they want to confront global authoritarianism, but also slash the defense budget and try to de-emphasize military competition. Now, can you actually do that? Or will engaging in that sort of measure short of war competition lead to this geopolitical intensity? I think that's a big question they just try to avoid. So they're open to charges, even when they get to the election, of naivety that you say you're going to be tough on Russia, China, but you're actually going to slash the military budget, send signals and America's pulling back. Yeah, and they will say, well, look, we will also want to try to get savings by modernizing the military, but everyone is sort of in that place. Yeah, it's like um, saving money on wasteful yeah, things. Um, and, you know, they may succeed in cutting the defense budget to some extent, but if you take seriously, as they do, you know, this long-term competition with China it's sort of hard to see how that results in a ratcheting down of tensions. They also have other sort of issues. Both of them are very strong in diplomacy. So they say we want a new deal or the JCPOA with Iran and we want to do a deal with North Korea. But one thing they don't really talk about is where their leverage comes from. So when Obama negotiated the JCPOA, he famously put the use of force on the table. He said the US would use force if necessary as a last resort. I spoke in this piece I wrote on Warren and Sanders to Matt Dust, who's a foreign policy advisor to Sanders, who said on the record and is quoted in the piece that President Sanders probably would not do that, that they would rely on sanctions as leverage. You know, it's very hard to pin Warren down on this. But, you know, the irony of sort of diplomacy in the modern age is that Republicans get a lot of leverage because they're willing to use force but they never know when to cash it in to actually do the deal and to, you know, to negotiate. They often do make good on the threat. So they're terrible at converting the levers they generate into negotiated outcomes. And Democrats sometimes, because they're quite wary about using force, find it hard to generate the leverage, but they're really keen to make the deal. You know, diplomacy is not just about the number of diplomats you have, which is what Warren and Sanders have both focused on, you know, trying to properly fund the State Department. It's also sort of on a theory of success in negotiations. And I think they have struggled on that too, but they generally just aren't all that keen to get into those questions because they think, well, look, it doesn't really matter. You know, this is an election campaign, but it does mean that if one of them wins and it's obviously more likely to be Warren than Sanders, I think at this point, if one of them did, that there would, I think, in the early stages of their administration, be fundamental questions about their foreign policy and probably a lot of internal arguments and discussions about sort of the best way to proceed in line with the vision that she outlined in the campaign. Mm. I mean, do you think in an odd way, although, of course, they will define themselves almost as the polar opposite of Trump, 
that at least in foreign policy, there are some continuities. First, just the lack of interest. You know, Trump campaigned as America first, rebuilt the United States. And also in the slightly isolationist instinct, the desire to essentially get out of the Middle East, get out of wars, retrench American power. And so that you could have some continuity there. Yeah, they would dispute the isolationist term, which is particularly fraught. But I think it is right to say that they do want to retrench, you know, especially out of the Middle East. And their critique of Trump would be that he didn't make good in his own rhetoric of doing that. And, you know, there is a continuity in that sense from Obama to Trump to Warren in that they all want to do a little bit less and to sort of focus on the home front, even though they go about that in very different ways. I think there's also a continuity between Trump and Warren on trade and economic policy internationally, not domestically. Yeah, because a lot of the people who are worried about Warren, even if they think, you know, they vote for her, say her trade policy is highly protectionist. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, she outlined this trade policy that sort of said, you know, to do trade deals, other countries would have to come up to U.S. standards on labor, environmental issues and others. But of course, given the disparities that already exist in the world, that's you know very unlikely to happen. And what we do know about her is that she is fundamentally different, I think, to the Geithner-Summers <laughs> you know, consensus that previously existed. Um, she fought a lot with those guys before. Um, there were many clashes in the early years of the Obama administration. So I think her international economic policy would be different. I think it'd be different than Trump too, but the continuity is just in the rejection of that old sort of consensus. But again, it's not, you know, I think it still has to be fleshed out a lot and it's not quite clear that they've done their own internal thinking even on, you know, managing any sort of incoherence or contradictions you know, what exactly would be the role of the U.S. in upholding a healthy global economy. In the foreign affairs piece she wrote, Warren effectively says that the global economy is a conspiracy by the uber-wealthy to keep the middle classes down, and that a structure, the entire structure, is to benefit these elites, and they design it with that in mind. Well, you know, that may resonate, but one could imagine that in a financial crisis, that could complicate cooperation to actually address the crisis. And what would the implications be even without a crisis? In a way, you take the Trumpian slogan about it's a rigged system, which he applied domestically. And so the whole world yeah. is a rigged system. OK, you're President Warren. You want to unrig the system. What do you do on a global level to attack this oligarchic thing that she's concerned about? I think there's a couple of things There's a way to do it that could be effective, I think, and there's a way to do it that would be more ideological. The way to be effective would be to build on existing efforts and to say, look, there needs to be more transatlantic cooperation on tackling corporate tax avoidance. And we need to build on that OECD process to ensure that companies can't evade tax so Facebook and others don't pay nothing effectively. You would try to get a common position in terms of the role of China in the global economy and to have this democratic free world bloc that would live up to certain standards and have these protections. So there are all sorts of things that I think are highly sort of reasonable and, you know, that could be done. But that's sort of an extension of where Obama was headed, I think. And it's also kind of French as well. It's sort of a little bit French, you know, a little bit European, but also there's broad support. I think you actually see Larry Summers and others writing about that as well in support of it. And so the more ideological approach is to say the whole thing needs, you know, a fundamental overhaul. 
and to begin questioning some of those basic institutions. And I don't think any of us really know what that would entail, but it would be more radical. Right. And then just to kind of round off, let's talk a little bit about the domestic politics of this, because to fess up, we're talking in whatever it is, late September, Trump's just been impeached. Well, the impeachment proceedings have started. Indeed, he hasn't been impeached, but the impeachment proceedings have started. And politics is moving so fast that we don't know what could happen next week. But I know that you're concerned that this surge in support for Warren could be disguising weaknesses in her campaign if and when she were to get the nomination and were to face Trump. What particularly are you worried about? Well, I think in the Democratic primary so far, it's been fairly friendly and it's been fairly focused on progressive concerns, right? So when you have these debates, there's a debate about healthcare and debate about immigration and race issues and a variety of different issues that are very important. And the general trajectory is for people to try to outbid each other a little bit on how progressive they will be with a bit of a debate on private health insurance over Medicare for all. But in the general election, to state the obvious, there will be a tsunami of aggression from the Trump side against the Democratic positions. And Warren and Sanders both have positions which are very far-reaching by international standards as well as by U.S. standards on healthcare, on immigration policy, on energy, on wealth taxes, which hardly exists anywhere in the world. So you were saying, just to flesh that out, that Warren would move beyond the normal cliche about, well, it's left-wing for America, but it would be mainstream in Europe. She would be doing stuff that was left-wing by anybody's standards, like abolishing private health insurance and like having a wealth tax. Yeah, I mean, these things do exist, you know, and there's a legitimate case to be made for them, but they are bold and ambitious, to put it in those terms, right? And sort of non-pejorative terms, they're far-reaching. And, you know, she's going to get very strongly criticised for that, and Trump will try to make the campaign a part of a referendum on those policy positions. We don't know so far how our positions will hold up under massive fire because they haven't been criticised all that much. So and to preview the campaign, if it were Warren or Sanders, it was essentially be Trump saying, Warren is the candidate who will take your health care away and open America's borders. Yeah, and the more nuanced message hidden in that to a lot of swing voters will be, you may not like me particularly much, you may hate me in many respects, this would be Trump saying it, but she is about major structural reform to your life. And are you comfortable with this structural reform? Or I'm sort of the devil you know, and more status quo oriented in the economy. And, you know, I think that's a risk for Democrats. You know, Biden would offer a very different message. Biden's message will be not particularly ambitious, to be honest, sort of more we need to take a bit of a time out as a country to try to heal, to try to sort of recognize that we need to work together. A lot of Democrats think that's a little naive, but arguably, you know, one could think it might better suit the moment when the Senate will be very evenly divided, may still even be in Republican hands. At best, it could be 51 seats or 50 seats with a tiebreaker. So that, I think, is what the choice is facing Democratic voters. And it's a fairly fundamental alternative. I think we don't really know, and I can't you know, predict how it will go, but the one thing I would like to see is a more feisty, confrontational 
primary debate process where all of the candidates, Biden, Warren and others, are sort of under fire for the models they are offering, right? And that we get some preview a little bit just of what they will be like if they are questioned on it, you know, because right now Biden has been questioned on it, but most of the other candidates have not really had to defend the rationale for their worldviews, I mean, domestically as well as internationally. And I think it's, you know, it's as if you were preparing for a new sort of soccer season, right, or any sort of sports season and you were training and you were only training on your strengths and you weren't really thinking about this really aggressive team out there and what they would do to you with unconventional tactics. I mean, if you wanted to win, you would game all of that out and try to get some practice in against tough opponents to be ready for that game. That's sort of where I think we are a little bit right now. Okay, well, Tom, we're almost a year up till the election, a little bit more than a year, so I'm sure we'll have plenty of occasion to talk again in the coming year. But for now, thank you very much. Great, thank you. That's it for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash review. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.